Okay, welcome back to another episode of Just Another Bozo on the Bus. I'm your host, Paul Randack. I want to welcome all my fellow bozos out there. Listeners, um, before we get started today, just a reminder, next week we have a bozo roundtable with um, Sarah, uh, Brent, and I think uh, Zach Shadi will be here. Um, but this week, um, I'm excited and glad to welcome uh, Randall Carlisle to <laughs> the circus. Does, does this make me a bozo? This makes you a bozo. I, I grew up watching Bozo the Clown, so I, I have a reference there. Me, me, me too. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. We're, we're probably not that far off in age, I'm going to guess. I'm older than you, but okay. that's all right. Okay. <laughs> you, well, you, you look better, though. So. <laughs> anyway, um, Randall has been kind enough to come on and uh, is going to share a little bit about his life and his story. And we'll also talk about um, um, Odyssey House. And uh, and maybe we'll even talk about a little bit what's going on in the legislature these days. Sure. Um, because there are some important things happening, and uh, I know you're you're involved in those as well. Um. And uh, in April, right now, we've got a bunch of things are open. Um, I am having the, the, the Do- pros from Dover will be back towards the end of April. Um, and uh, we got a couple special guests at the beginning of the month. Anyway, but today, uh, this is about Randall and uh, get to learn a little bit about his story. And uh, here in Utah, where um, the, many of our listeners are, but they are from all all over the country and as far as you know you know around the world um people know hello russia hello Russia. call in right now if you're listening (laughs) most people know you from all your years on on, as as a news broadcaster i uh started in radio when i was 14 so i've got probably 50 years in radio and television uh, in my 20s, I switched from radio. I, in radio, I, I climbed all the way to Detroit at a big AM station back there. And then I saw that people were making more money in television. So I tried, So I got into television and I have spent 40 years in TV. Mm-hmm. Um, I spent eight years at Channel 2 here in Salt Lake City. Excuse me, but I've got to apologize. I have a bad cold, so if I cough, you'll... You'll have to forgive me. I spent eight years back in the 80s at uh, Channel 2 here in Salt Lake. Then I went to Minneapolis for two years, Dallas for two years. And then I came back to Salt Lake at Channel 4 for about 23 years. Yeah. So so I've had a, a, long, a long history of radio and television. And obviously the reason you're talking to me today is I... Uh, Throughout all those, I'd say for about 40 years, I was a functional alcoholic. And when I talk about that now, people say, so when I was watching you at 6 and 10, were you drunk? And I said, no, that's not the definition of a functional alcoholic. I I was totally sober when I was on the air. Right. And I would uh, go home and go to a bar and then go home uh, and drink till I passed out every night. And then I slept in till 11 or 12 in the morning. I didn't have to be at work until two. Mm -hmm. I joke about the fact that if you want to be a successful, professional, functional alcoholic, be a TV anchor man, because it's a perfect (laughs) shift. You go in at two, you get done at 1035. Perfect timing, right? 
Well, exactly. And, and, and there and there, uh, there are a few that have been also. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And and you know, it did it so I you know, first thing I want to promise people is I I was never drunk on the air. I took my job very seriously. Um but after you, as I presume your listeners know that alcoholism is a progressive disease and it got worse and worse for me. I functioned very well uh, for maybe the first, I don't know, maybe 25, 30 years. Um, didn't seem, it didn't seem to bother me professionally. It actually never bothered me professionally. But personally, uh, I went through four wives. Uh, I had a really screwed up personal life because I was never present. and mm-hmm. I was always drinking when I was around my spouse says that's not to say i was a polygamist okay i did i did <laughs> married, the, married one i, I did them one at a time so, so yeah. a serial monogamist is and what uh so it must have been about and i i began to black out every single time i drank and and so i wouldn't remember what i had done the night before and i just decided and, and i was always I, I think most alcoholics and addicts feel a great deal of shame. And <clears throat> I had trouble dealing with the fact that I'd go out in public and people would say, oh, I love you on the air and you're a great person and all that. Mm-hmm. And inwardly, I was thinking, no, I'm not. And uh, and I would get more and more depressed, which alcohol does to you. And I finally decided I needed to go to treatment so i went through an iop program at uni and was sober for about nine months and after i after i left that program uh and and i'd been sober for nine months uh my last wife left me and i was fired from channel four uh (coughs) because of the fact that uh, there was new ownership there. It wasn't. It had nothing to do with my drinking. It was just new ownership, and they decided well, to go you, a different direction. You said you were sober at the time, anyway. Oh, oh so, yeah, yeah. So the which is so those two things change, right? said to me. Your wife said with she wait. said goodbye, and Channel Four said goodbye, <laughs> and my alcoholic brain said hello, <laughs> uh, and I I had enough money that I could uh, drink whenever I wanted and pretty much do whatever I wanted. Mm-hmm. And so I started drinking full time and it got not uh, just at night anymore. <laughs> no, no, I it got got to the point where I had to have four or five beers in the morning. So my hand would be steady enough to shave. And that went on for uh, many months. And I, I became more and more depressed and I isolated more and more. And I, I, I don't know what it was that prompted me uh, to call one of the therapists that I had worked with at uni mm-hmm. and it was on a Saturday and I, and I'd already had, I was three sheets to the wind. Mm-hmm. And I said, I, I need help. Mm-hmm. And she said, we have a bed for you in detox if you can get there. And I remember I live in a, I live in a downtown high rise condo project and our parking lot. Uh, part of our parking lot is also the parking lot for the Hilton hotel and I and I always use the Hilton to to get a cab to go to the airport or whatever because it's quicker than calling. Sure. And I remember walking across P1 in the parking lot, stumbling, falling, crawling, 
uh, getting to the Hilton elevator from the P1 lobby or from the P1 parking area. Mm-hmm. And I and it took me to the lobby. And the lobby, is, as you might expect, was packed. And I stumbled and fell through the lobby, got out to the bell cap, and he and the cab driver basically helped me into a cab and i went up to uni poured you into the yeah, you into and, the cab. you know and that you know you want to talk shame i i, I mean i i thought you know what if these people here say oh my gosh that's the guy on tv and look at him yeah it was just uh mm-hmm. it was a bad feeling so i went through detox and went through the uni outpatient program again and uh <coughs> i was more determined this time around uh, to stay sober, uh, and I always do things to excess, as I think a lot of alcoholics and addicts do. Uh, when I got out, I went to 90 AA meetings in 90 days, kept going to aftercare at uni, and I just wanted to make sure that uh, that I didn't relapse, so I started on antabuse mm-hmm. uh, that would make me sick if I drank, right. along with, um, no, what's the name of the drug that's in Vivitrol, the... Oh, um, uh, it's now yeah. So I was taking yeah. now Trexone pill every day, an antabuse pill every day, and doing all that work in recovery. Mm-hmm. And I did that for about eight months. And anyway, I've stayed I've stayed sober since then. <coughs> and uh, I uh, it was very humbling. I decided I was ready for a job, and I. I applied every place in the world, including I was rejected as uh, I applied to be a shuttle bus driver at the airport, rejected for that. I even applied for a crossing guard job, was rejected for that. Uh, and it, and it, was, it, it was very humbling to go from being a TV anchor man to not even being hired to be a shuttle bus driver. And I was finally hired by Harmon's Grocery Store to be a customer service manager. Yeah. And I, I, I owe them a ton because and I'm sure they hired me just because of my notoriety from TV. Uh, and I knew nothing about the grocery business, but I learned very quickly. And, and I stayed there for several years. And <coughs> the, uh, the funny thing. The funny thing was, after a couple of years at Harmon's, mm-hmm. I got a call from Channel 4, and they had been taken over by new management, mm-hmm. and they wanted to hire me back as a weekend anchor. Hmm. And so, I remember that. I remember that. Was, but I remember the Harmon's gig, too. And yeah. That's, that's, I always had the feeling that 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 was, you know, you, you felt at home there. I mean, it was authentic, I thought. I don't know if I would. I was very comfortable yeah. there, and I did a good job. The only thing that was somewhat frustrating or somewhat shameful still mm-hmm. was people would come up to me and say, uh, we're glad you're at Harmon's, but why, how did, why did you make the move from TV anchor to <laughs> Harmon's customer service manager? Right. You know, I, I, I had a hard time explaining that, and I actually didn't have time to do much of a story to people. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Harmon's helped save my life. Mm. And then I went to uh, Channel 4 for several years on weekends and weekday street reporting. And one of the 
one of my beats was the uh, the cesspool that was going on down on Rio Grande oh. before Operation Rio Grande, and then as Operation Rio Grande was being planned, right. and then as it was being executed, I remember walking down the street the morning they moved in there, and there were helicopters flying over, and it was almost like a troop invasion and, and being live on the air. But at, at that point, Odyssey House was one of the... One of the treatment centers that they were planning on using for uh, the second phase of or the first phase of Operation Rio Grande was a crackdown on you know, to restore law and order and a cleanup. And, a bit. Yeah. And then the second was treatment for the people mm-hmm. who were arrested, who needed help. And Odyssey played a big role in that. And I got to know the people at Odyssey and they offered me a job in media and community relations. Mm-hmm. And I Channel 4 let me out of my contract and I retired from TV and went to work at Odyssey, and I've been there uh, a year and three quarters now. Wow. And it's, I can honestly say I'm not knocking TV, but it's the best job I ever had, especially for a recovering alcoholic. Because sure. in TV, at the end of a 10 o'clock newscast, everybody says, let's go to the bar. And nobody says that at Odyssey House. So, and a lot of the people. Who, or if they do, they don't say it out loud. Yeah, anyway. right. And a lot of the people who work there are people in recovery as well. So sure. it's a, it's just a, it's a more comfortable fit for me. And I, as I gain confidence talking about my past, the reason I do it is not. I, I really don't like notoriety, and I hate doing stuff like we're doing right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I think it's important to remove the stigma around both drug addiction and alcoholism Mm -hmm. in that, you know, you can be a TV anchor, a doctor, a lawyer. You just don't have to be. It's not just the person down on Rio Grande who suffers from these from this disease. And and there's nothing wrong with seeking treatment and saying that. I mean, nobody's embarrassed to say I have cancer, but, but everybody's embarrassed to say, I have an addiction that I need to deal with. And the, so, the stigma runs deep and, still. And, and so it's gotten I, a little better, but it's still... It, it is getting better slowly. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and, and I still think there's a huge number of people, especially in Utah, who consider this a moral failing as yeah. opposed to a disease. And I can tell you, I mean, from my experience and from everybody I work with, at, from all our clients at Odyssey... It okay. It, it it was a mistake to do it in the first place, and you might want to call that a moral failing. But once whatever it ha, it has ripped you in addiction mm-hmm. is a disease and not a moral failing, yeah. and you need help to deal with that's it. That's exactly yeah. that's exactly right. The, the, there is a there is a shift towards taking a, a more compassionate stance on this. Um, but the the problem with the the moral f- um, failure mm-hmm. dynamic. Is that that always leads to shame, um, and, and and Lord knows we suffer so much shame already going yeah. through addiction. Yeah. You know, well, and then in, instead of you know the the and the notion of shame being um, or the difference between like shame and guilt. Guilt is you know I made a mistake, and shame is I am a mistake or I right. am a problem. Right. That the the toxicity of that um, is is what often just fuels all the addictive behaviors, sure. whether it be drugs, alcohol, sex, work. You know, and, and I'm to the point now, I mean, you develop a pretty thick skin in television because people <laughs> criticize you for the way you wear your hair, or the tie you put on that day. Uh-huh. Uh, and I've developed a thick skin about this now. And if people judge me harshly <coughs> because 
because I'm a recovering alcoholic, then I, I don't really care. You know, I've, mm-hmm. it's like, I, you know, I'm sorry you feel that way. Uh, you need greater understanding uh, because it could be your husband, wife, son, daughter, father, mother, mm-hmm. you know. And, and I, I think that's what's helping to erase the stigma is that people, people are experiencing that with, within their own family connections sure and, and realizing that it that you know that it's it's a disease well and it starts i mean it does start in the family as well in the sense of the 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 notion that addiction is just the is is created around just the person that has the problem necessarily or the identified patient so to speak the family system also i'm a, a marriage and family therapist so i look at the whole family system too and it's something we don't always talk about especially here in utah quite often is that what's this what's the family's part in enabling and creating and um, fueling the problem itself and the and, dynamics of that are so significant i mean i i we have a family group uh, that's just for the relatives of loved ones mm-hmm. or close people to loved ones who are in treatment and and the stories are amazing uh especially especially the parents of adult heroin addicts i mean and and the whole point of these groups is to get them to be be, first of all they examine their enabling behavior Mm -hmm. from the past and and learn to deal with it and learn to stop that kind of behavior and also to get healthy themselves because they're unhealthy i mean i remember one woman at one family group she said, uh, you know, I've always wanted to go to Italy and I saved up enough money and I have a trip planned, but I think I'm going to cancel it. And and the facilitator said, why? And she said, well, my, you know, my son's out on the street and I know he's high on heroin. And what if he overdoses? Uh-huh. And, and and the facilitator said, well, or other parents said, well, what are you going to do whether you're in Italy or whether you're living in a house in Salt Lake? Yeah. He's going to overdose. That's right. You know, and That's you've got right. to live your own life. Yeah. You know, and the and the whole goal of those groups, like the ones you run or or we run, is is for them to get healthy so that when their loved one gets healthy through right. treatment and comes home or comes back to that environment, it's a different environment. Yeah. That that the analogy I like is the the puzzle, right? Sure. If if just the one person gets the help and the family doesn't get any help, how how are they all going to fit back together again? If one of if they can't speak the same language anymore, or they don't have the same level of understanding sure. that's surrounding the problem, same thing's going to the happen. creation of the yeah. problem in the first place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and and. Um, this notion, too, uh, between addiction, shame and, and addiction is something that's very dear to my, my heart as well. Um, uh, and the, the listeners of this program know, um, I mean, I wrote a book about shame and addiction and uh, the idea being that um, if we can if we can transform our shame, which is often the root cause and looking at addiction as a symptom of of shame, um, then you know we can we can change all all the different aspects of our lives um, on, a, on a on a psychological, a spiritual, and a physical level. Sure. Yeah, body, mind, spirit. I guess is is where I'm going. With yeah, that. it's amazing what happens when you get sober and your mind, your Clear. brain begins to heal. I mean, yeah. I like I said, I'm I'm going on I'm close to seven years of sobriety, and I really think my brain is still getting more clear every day. Yeah. You know. Yeah. 
it's it's amazing <laughs> and until it's until, in my case until it starts deteriorating <laughs> yeah, well i worry about that too at my age but yeah, i can't remember names of people i met yeah and then it's like hmm, i don't think that's because of alcohol it could yeah. be because of age true and when i contacted you to do this i said you probably don't remember me <laughs> <laughs> we we've met 30 you know we were we, we we kind of ran in the same circles 30 years ago <laughs> but the, one of the last times i saw you was at my wedding at at a friend of friends of ours house and i'm sure at that time we probably both had drinks in our hands probably anyway. <laughs> yeah i run into people all i used to have a back in my heaviest partying days i used to have an industrial loft condo uh, mm. down in the firestone tire building at the corner of third south and third third west mm-hmm. and i i me and my buddies would shut down Porticall uh every night and invite whoever was left at closing time down to party at my place mm. so even today and that was what several decades ago uh-huh. i run into people and say hey do you still own that loft condo we had some great parties <laughs> at your place and i i have no idea who i'm talking to or uh-huh. anything else you know uh-huh. And at the time, it seemed like fun, but it, you know, looking back on it, it was very non-productive, and you know, and I have no idea what I did, mm-hmm. you know, because I blacked out all the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's almost like, I, I mean, not almost. It does it feel to you like living two different lives in some ways? Oh, very much does, so. That I'm, you know, there was the the drinking and the self medication life, and, and, the, and the, the the fear and, and the shame there, and then sort of the, the a, a new awakening kind of happening. Oh, you mean compared to when I was drinking to now? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I I just wish I would have discovered this life a little earlier. (laughs) You know, 40 years of 40 years of abusing your body and your brain and doing stupid stuff uh, is a long time. And I probably at my age, I won't have another 40 years of, of, of doing life the way I'm doing it now. Yeah. And I and I really do regret the fact that that I that I that I didn't discover this earlier and and when i speak to our clients or or groups you know and i I, and i know it's pretty useless to say because i'll talk to a young person and by young i mean mid-20s to Mm mid-30s and and say and it did and i always picture my father then is you know because i'll say stuff like i i'm so happy that you're doing this at your age because I wish I would have done it at my age, right. and they're probably thinking, "Who's this old geezer, given <laughs> trying to give me advice?" But I, but I do wish that I, you know, I really, I honor the people that I meet in in twelve step meetings and 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 in treatment programs who are that age group who are seeking help at that age, because mm-hmm. I never would have. I, I, I mean, my line was always, "I don't need any help." I, yeah, I drink a lot, but I'm not an alcoholic. Right, right. You know, yeah. Well, and the focus is, or at least the insight and the awareness around addiction has changed, that people are entering into it much younger, um, you know, going to treatment much younger. And and I also, you know, having worked in the field for almost 20 years, one of the things that I, that I know also is not everyone that walks in the door is necessarily an addict either. They just, some of them just have, you know, abuse problems that they've had with the, the drug, especially if they're young. Right. And so, you know, that I, I know there's a, 
there's a propensity to want to put a, a label on somebody, but sure. we do our best with younger people not to to do that. To, they've got to find their way through this and find out what their truth is. And I'm sure you, you kind of understand. Sure, that. And, and kudos to them for looking at that at, yeah. at a young age. Yeah. You know, yeah. I wouldn't have examined that. I would have thrown you out of my house if you had suggested <laughs> I had a problem. And right. obviously, that's why I went through so many wives, too, yeah. because I, I was in den- constant denial. And my excuse was always, hey, look, okay, I, you know, I, I drink too much at night and I drink too much on weekends, but I've got this great job and, right. I, and, I've, and I've kept this great job and I've never been fired for drinking because mm-hmm. I never went to work booze on my breath or anything like that you know taking care of my responsibilities yeah 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 yeah. so one of the things that we had talked about um, before we started today was um some of the things that are going on here in utah and um you had brought up um the needle exchange program or the safe injection i maybe i brought up the safe injection sites um but there's some things happening right now i guess is it through the legislature that's well, the legislature, I'm, I'm not sure which year approved it, but uh, they approved a needle exchange program. And, and I go to a monthly meeting of something called the Syringe Exchange Network, mm-hmm. Utah Syringe Exchange Network. And, and it's sponsored by the State Department of Health. And, and there are people there from, the, from local health departments and, and various treatment providers and, and they talk about how many needles they exchange. Their uh, harm reduction coalition is there. One Voice Recovery is there. And and it's really funny because they have, they do needle exchanges, uh, I think, on a, a weekly basis. And they have needle drop-off sites. Right. And... And it's still controversial, uh, even though the we the research and the numbers show that it does decrease um, the transfer of disease, hepatitis, uh, AIDS, uh, AIDS uh, death. Uh, I mean, yeah. it, you know, it, it reduces a lot of those things. And 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 kudos to the legislature for authorizing funding for the State Department of Health to do mm-hmm. this. And they've got. Uh, they're led by a, a really dedicated person, Heather Bush, at the State Department of Health, uh, who hooks up with all of these harm reduction groups and and tries to spread the word of, uh, about why they're doing it. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, and, and they're, they're constantly running into your you know your furthering addiction, your your enabling all these all these bad behaviors and 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 that's a pretty constant yeah. comment that they get you yeah. know well and and the reality from my perspective anyway is that and i'm, I'm assuming from yours but I, that someone if they want to use drugs are going to find a way to use drugs and they can either and if with the clean syringe um the control factors associated with the possible harm from using a, a, a dirty syringe um, that could be easily carrying disease uh, um, and be shared with many people. Right. If there's an exchange program, we begin to limit some of the fallout and the collateral damage that comes from the problem in the first place. We do. It, it's not. I, I don't think that people are ignorant that um, addicts have have an issue, have you know problems in their lives that they need to work on. People that are drug addicted. Um, and it's not in enabling them by giving them uh, a 
a clean syringe or even, I mean, from the idea from a safe injection site, even a safe place to do it, it cuts down on the the problems associated with it, on the collateral damage associated with the drug use in the first place. I think the other part of that and, and that probably is as important too is that they're having contact with someone within the community from the healthcare service point of view and this is maybe another way in which we can change the 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 perspective that um instead of this being a, a moral or um problem or a uh criminal problem that it's really a health issue it, it's a, it's a social and um, healthcare problem that we need to address from from those services. You're absolutely right. There was a recent conference here, an opioid conference, and they had Canadian health officials talking about their program. and And I I think one of the quotes I heard from one of the Canadians was, "We're not enabling drug usage. We're enabling life." Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and if the person's dead. They're certainly not going to seek treatment, and and your point is well taken, and he pointed that out too, is the fact that there is this community, as opposed to a bunch of heroin addicts hanging out in an old warehouse somewhere shooting up, they are having contact with people who provide treatment options to them when they come to exchange their needles, and 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 they're alive, so they can consider options. Uh, one of the things that at all these needle exchanges that they do now is they give them all naloxone kits. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I've run, I've met so many people in, in the Odyssey program whose lives have been saved by naloxone Mm -hmm. or who have saved other users with the naloxone they had in their heroin kit. Right. Uh, I I interviewed one, one guy in his twenties and, and he was saved by a friend uh, and and the guy who was saved had he, he carried a drug kit with him, mm-hmm. and he had naloxone in his drug kit. Mm-hmm. And his buddy saw when he was turning blue and stopping breathing mm-hmm. uh, that he went through his kit and found naloxone and and gave it to him, and 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 he lived. Uh, and so you know these these harm reduction groups are, you know, they're reducing death. They're enabling people to at least get information about. Mm-hmm treatment services if they so desire yeah well and i i've got to be honest with you randall i probably hear four to five times a week that a story like that sure from different people um where having the naltrexone kit um you know the <laughs> the um naltrexone you know in these different forms available i know the nasal spray there was you know funding that was done through uh, i can't remember the name of the group but um that did it, but they went around to the treatment centers and offered, you know, right. to, to offer those around. And now it's the availability of that really has changed the dynamic um, around opiate overdoses. I mean, they are beginning to finally go down. Um, and you, know, it, da- you know, I attributed it all to. I'm good friends with her as Jennifer, Doctor Jennifer Plum, who runs Utah Naloxone. Yeah, and she was totally. Her group was totally responsible. She's a. An emergency pediatrician doctor up at Primary Children's, and and she, uh, her group was totally responsible for getting naloxone kits or Narcan mm-hmm. into the hands of first responders, uh, cops, right. uh, 
anybody on the street who might need it and also pushing so that uh, you didn't have to have a prescription so anybody can walk into a pharmacy and buy naloxone if they want mm-hmm. uh, or get it free mostly through her group mm-hmm. and and you know it, it, we got I can't remember who we got it from the county health department they had a surplus one one week of naloxone kits and yeah. so I put out a press release saying uh, you can come down to our admissions office and get free naloxone and 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 they were gone in a day and a half but the, the and this is one aspect I never thought about mm-hmm. I saw this old couple in there and and I was thinking you know I was picturing drug addicts or friends of drug addicts on the street or something mm-hmm. coming in to get it and and I talked to them without being intrusive I I said I, how come you guys are here and and it's something I never thought about, but she said, and they were very elderly, and she said, my husband is on uh, uh, prescription painkillers, oxys mm-hmm. or whatever, and he's very forgetful, and and oh, I worry a, that he will, you know, take point. take the pills when he's supposed to, and then forget that he took the pills mm-hmm. and take them again, and that he'll overdose, and so I just want to have this available. You know, if I, if I see him stop breathing. Yeah. And, you know, that's why anybody who is around anybody who uses any kind of opioids mm-hmm. should have an naloxone kit mm-hmm. because it's easy to administer and it's just, there's just no reason not to now. It's right. not addictive. It doesn't, if, if you're <laughs> not, if you accidentally give it to somebody who you think is overdosing and, and they're not, it, it's not going to cause any harm. There's mm-hmm. so there's no reason not for everybody to have yeah. have something like that yeah. because it's it's saving hundreds of lives and I and I think that's why our opioid death rate is slowly going down. Mm-hmm. You know? I think so too, and there definitely has been a, a deeper level of awareness around the need to be. I mean, this is really a proactive way that it doesn't take a lot of money it 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 doesn't make it take a lot of effort to keep a kid around i have a few in my house um actually in a bookshelf by the front door if you know and i let people know that i mean i i have other family members that have struggled at times and i've gotten them uh the 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 kits and the the point being that if we can work on removing the stigma again this is changing it from a moral or a criminal point of view but looking at it from a healthcare point of view, that way I think we can really, right. and it's proven that we can make some change and some difference. It, and I, you know, we're known as a pretty conservative state when it comes to issues like that. But we were, we pattern, uh, we actually have more liberal needle exchange laws than California. Huh. Uh, and you know, because along with these kits, I think there's a tie-off so you can find your vein to inject and, and needles and naloxone and. It's um, and and that's all legal. Yeah, uh, and the health department goes around and collects the syringes mm-hmm. that are that are dumped off in the syringe dumping sites, and they they pull several thousand in a month. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's a need for this. Yes, definitely. And, 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 and it's not that we're saying, yeah, go ahead and be a. A substance abuse or a substance use <laughs> person uh it's just saying we want to keep you alive yeah right you know and and cut down the health risks that you may be right you know you know putting yourself through and um and and that's of course 
spread through you know wide throughout uh, our community in many different ways um and i i mean i know people that have had you know had sobriety for a period of time and then find out later on down the road that they've had some health issues associated with iv use sure so um you know keeping that all in mind and i know that what because of the the moral stigma associated with this it sometimes becomes an issue that people like to push away from but it's 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 too much now part of our culture and and um our families that we can't we really can't ignore it anymore well and I, I mean you know kudos to say the lds church which you would suspect would i and i'm not lds uh, but you would suspect, after covering what they what's happened over the years here in Utah, mm-hmm. that they would want to turn a blind eye to something like that. Mm-hmm. And they don't. They they have their own twelve step program to deal with sure. issues like that. Sure. They contribute tons of money to causes that deal with people in addiction. Uh, I worked with a, a reporter at KSL, which is owned by the Mormon Church, um, who then they had a a half-hour special between general conference uh, sessions uh, either a half a year ago or a year ago where they focused on on Mormons who were dealing with addiction issues. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I I think everybody is slowly beginning, even the most conservative segment of our society here is dealing with the fact that these issues do exist, Mm -hmm. and it's not just limited to... A, a specific religion or non-religion or socio-economic level, it it hits everybody. Everybody, yeah, yeah. It, it, it all all communities, all cultures, yeah. all faiths. Yes, yeah, all incomes. Right, everyone's affected. I, I wonder. Um, uh, it came to what your thoughts are, um, because Utah has. Well, it's 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 renowned for a couple other things too um, in the mental health area, uh, especially for youth and pediatrics. And we're we're in that sort of the the top of uh, we have some of the highest number of kids that are not being treated for mental health issues again because of stigma. Um, and we know sort of some of the um, offshoots of that. Um, our self-harm and suicide sure. rates and especially during you know with adolescents um, and young adults that um, we have some of the highest rates in the country um, how do you think that kind of plays in, into all this as well, well because there seems to be even just a stigma I mean we've talked about the stigma around addiction but the one around mental health is is strong here too and, and I think you know I can't explain why but I can say that at least we're beginning to take action in that area. And the, and the most recent uh, legislature allocated, it was, I can't remember, the, but it's millions of dollars mm-hmm. to go to various school districts to make sure that there is at least someone in every single school that uh, kids can talk to about an issue like this. And uh, we, Odyssey House, uh, we have a pilot program with Salt Lake City School District at a at a, an elementary school and at a high school that are both high-risk schools mm-hmm. or have experienced suicides mm-hmm. or, or heavy suicidal ideation. Mm-hmm. And that's only been in effect since January. And the, and, and we, the approach we're taking, everybody's trying something that, would, that maybe will work. Uh, the approach we're taking is having that person in the school 
uh, and most schools have had access to a counselor. If a kid comes in and talks about something and they'll say, okay, we'll refer you to this person and you may have to go there with your parents in the evening and blah, blah, blah. And we're trying right now to see how it works having the the person the the therapist in the school itself right right and even in the elementary school uh when they announced that somebody would be there and they announced that it would be confidential and you can talk about whatever Mm -hmm. you want our our therapist was swamped from the very beginning and now there's like a waiting list of like 15 kids who want to get in and talk to her Mm -hmm. i believe that Uh, so there's a need for something like that and what she's learning i don't i you know if i had in my personal opinion why kids are having to deal with all this crap is is because they're dealing with issues that we never dealt with when we were growing up i didn't uh, i mean i have a friend who works in a grade school who had a a fifth grader commits suicide and and i'm trying to you know when i heard that it's like what what would fifth grader would be what 10 or 11 yeah 10 10 or yeah 10 or 11 somewhere and, and when i was 10 or 11 i'm not sure i even heard the word suicide or knew what it meant mm-hmm. <clears throat> and and i certainly didn't have access to the internet, <laughs> the internet. I was yeah, well, lucky. These, I, I was these, lucky to have these things didn't exist. Yeah, all cell phones, phone, you know. I had access to three TV channels, and, and that was it. Um, and I played outside all the time. Uh, so I think it's a it's just a different world that kids are growing up in, and it's more yeah. complicated and more. I would think more confusing, even though it seems simpler to. I mean, when I needed to do research, I went to an encyclopedia. Okay, now you just Google something and it tells you what you need to know. Yeah. Uh, but it'll tell you maybe what you don't need to know at the same I, I don't know. It's just the world is open to kids now, and, it, and I yeah. don't feel like it was when I was growing up. Well, and, and maybe it also has something to do with the division, some of the cultural divisions that we deal with. Um, sort of the biases that exist and have gotten stronger that that are affecting families more. That, I think it, that this is not the best maybe way to explain it, but but some of that does trickle down into sure into kids by all, by all means. I used to do news stories before uh, before elections, and we'd go out to schools and and do straw polls on who you're voting for for president uh-huh. or or whatever yeah, sure. race we're talking yeah. about, and and. We'd ask them, and invariably, and then the follow-up question would be, uh, "Who are your parents voting for, <laughs> or are they Republicans or Democrats?" Right, right. And they and the kids were almost always the same as their parents in terms of saying what party they support sure. or what candidate they yeah. support. Yeah. So, so your, you know, your point is well taken yeah. that if if a parent expresses disdain over uh, an ethnic uh, group of people, um, you know, and, and I've heard, you know, I, I, we've all heard it. I mean, like after nine eleven, people will say offensive things about Muslims, mm-hmm. you know. And if a kid hears that from their dad or their mom, mm-hmm. uh, sure, they're going to develop those same kinds of attitudes. Sure, uh, sure. Well, it's it's a, it's not uncommon for children to foreclose on their 
parents' belief systems. Sure. Whether it be, you know, ethnically, politically, right. whatever the biases are. Sure. Yeah. And, it, and, and you're theologically. right. Theologically. And, and, and I think it's, you know, it's just a more complicated world for kids to grow up in. I, yeah. You know, I, I that would be my guess as to why they're dealing with so many issues. Mm-hmm. And the fact, you know, bullying is a huge thing. And it it's is. so easy to bully somebody. Now, when, when kids that's, bullied me, they'd, that's be, true. That's... they'd beat me up on the playground, you know, or I'd beat somebody up on them. I mean, I understand what you're or, saying. Or you'd say, you know, I still feel bad about the fact we had, I grew up in a little town in Ohio, and we had one little housing segment that we knew poor people lived in, mm-hmm. you know, and we'd, and we'd make fun. I remember her first name. Her name was Naomi. And we'd make fun of the fact that Naomi smelled when she came to school, oh, in, in grade school. Right, yeah. And I feel terrible now, right. but back then, you know, I just joined in with the other cool kids saying, Naomi smells today. Right. You know, and how, how did Naomi feel? She'd, she'd cry a lot, and I have no idea whatever happened to her. Yeah. But, but kids can be very cruel. Yeah. You know, and now it's so easy to be cruel. You do it on a on, on a smartphone, or you never have to see the person no. to do it. That's true. That's probably a, a huge part of this is the detachment that can come from the bullying and the cruelty. Sure. Yeah, by all means, by all means. Okay, well, we're going to move on a little bit, but I'm glad we we touched upon that because my when I the reason and the reason why Randall is that. My concern is this because shame usually comes around this. And if kids are offered, I'd love that the that Odyssey is doing this program. I didn't know about that. So I'm, I'm really grateful to hear that. And um, I have an interest in seeing um, services being brought into the schools, especially the elementary schools, because th- some of these kids are ready. They know that, I mean, right. because they do have more information, they know that if they can get help, they just don't always feel comfortable talking to their parents about it, or there's still a stigma associated in the home about, well, you, you'll figure it out or, right. or go talk to your spiritual leader, those kinds of things. And those things can help, but sometimes they need, just need somebody objective. objective. I, I mean, I'm amazed that people actually wanted to go into this to talk to this therapist mm-hmm. uh, at a grade school level uh-huh. you know i figured you know the the high school that we're in has a large number of lgbtq people mm-hmm. and i figured there'd be a lot more teens going into our therapist at that high school than at that grade school interesting and and the fact that they recognize the the need or desire mm-hmm. to talk about things is is really significant yeah. you know and, and our thinking in trying this was that if they're there on site it's a lot easier than doing it like after school or or <clears throat> you know making an appointment somewhere right right know. If it's brought to you, yeah, it, it becomes more I'm accessible. Here. Come in and talk to me, right? Yeah. And I see that. I know this. This is a strange comparison, but it's the same thing with the 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 you know the needle exchange. If you bring it to them, if you make it right. available, people will take advantage of it. Right. And that's the thing to I think to always remember is that people will choose if if they probably have that option to lower the harm for themselves. See, one of the things that the harm reduction groups are distributing now is uh, fentanyl test strips for yes uh, I've heard about for, this. Yeah. for users to check their drug supply to see if they might have a lethal level of fentanyl in their heroin mm-hmm. 
And the other thing I heard discussed at the meeting the other day, I mean, there's so many aspects of this. I mean, that's one of the reasons I like working, you know, at Odyssey Uh because I'm learning so much. Uh, But at this uh, syringe exchange network meeting is there are more and more dealers or chemists or whatever you want to call them uh, putting fentanyl in cocaine and meth. I've heard this too. And what's happening is the people who are buying cocaine and meth are not doing it. They're doing it for a really energetic high, mm-hmm. okay? Not a heroin-induced lull, like slowing down and like that. Well, co- so, cocaine was my DOC, so well, do you know? okay. <laughs> yeah, I understand and, that. And, and yeah. <clears throat> so, so people who are buying meth and cocaine yeah. laced with fentanyl are are really getting angry at their dealers because it's not having the desired speed up kind of effect yeah uh and so they might be wanting to the test strips to to check and see if they're getting what they want yeah uh and heroin users might be using it to find out if if they're gonna die right when they inject yeah uh, i don't know what you do you go back to the dealer and say <laughs> i want my money back but <laughs> right, that probably's I, not gonna happen i don't know that they <laughs> offer <guaranteed laughs> money refunds yeah. you know but uh but I think we're becoming wiser as a society because the goal of this wasn't so to make meth users happy. It was to save lives of heroin right. users. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's, you know, and it makes sense. I mean, because nobody knows what they're getting anymore. Yeah. You know, and fentanyl is, is such a, I mean, it's such a deadly thing that people are using, that dealers are using to put into the drugs I, I read the other day that they confiscated and it's coming from china yeah. and and it's a lot cheaper than like heroin it so is. if you mix it with it's heroin, a lot cheaper than heroin you yeah. know and I, I saw the other day that they confiscated enough fentanyl to kill a hundred million people wow. i mean you know i mean that's <laughs> you know that's that's incredible obviously you know it, it's going to be distributed and then mixed in with the drugs and everything mm-hmm. but but that, but I think we're at least becoming smarter as a society, saying we don't want to, we don't want all these people. I mean, we still have almost one person a day dying in Utah from an opioid overdose. Yeah, you know, yeah. we don't want that. You know, we don't want to. We also don't want to say, hey, it's okay, let's all use drugs. But we're also, but I think we also need to say, as a society, as a humane society, that we don't want people dying on the street. That's right. You know, that's right. I also like it that from the the aspect of that there is a certain amount of responsibility, even that people that are struggling in addiction will take. I mean, the idea behind wanting to know what's in their drugs. I mean, that's a responsible thing to do, even though they may not be in the healthiest place in their in their life, but they don't want to die from it. So, and then the needle exchange, and hearing that the youth that are um, offered, you know. Um, Mental health services are eager to take advantage of it when it's offered. One interesting observation I made from, and you can argue all you want about Operation Rio Grande, the ACLU takes a dim view of it because you were basically sweeping people off the street who who either were committing some minor offenses, uh, but the cops down there knew that they were, you know, substance 
use disorder people. Yeah. Uh, well, and plenty of dealers. I mean, well, the, I, I'm I'm good with getting the dealers on yeah. the street, but <laughs> but I mean, it, it took it took both. The dealers were there to supply the market right. demand. But what what's interesting is the people who were swept up in Operation Rio Grande. They went through a special Operation Rio Grande drug court, and many of them were referred to treatment facilities. Uh, and Odyssey House received a, a fair amount of them, and and now a long time after mm-hmm. Operation Rio Grande, uh, we've got our numbers in, and and we have at Odyssey the the way we get, the only way you can gauge success is if people complete the program. You can't follow them forever and say right. that they stay drug free or yeah. alcohol free all their lives, uh, but. We probably have a, probably an average of 68% completion rate mm-hmm. just overall in our program. And because of the fact that there was funding for these Operation Rio Grande clients, uh, we have really strict reporting to, back to the county and the state mm-hmm. as to how they're doing. And they had a completion rate in our program of 74%. And I would have guessed... Just the opposite, saying if you're sweeping people off the street and they were down there at the homeless shelter and everything, their odds of succeeding are, like, really slim. Uh-huh. And they're, they're completing our programs at a higher rate than the average person who comes into our program. Isn't that fascinating? And, and I've interviewed a lot of them, and the only, the only explanation they could give me is I was just so sick and tired of living like mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. And now I've, now I've been forced to look at at a new option, a new way to live mm-hmm. in life. Mm-hmm. And 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 I've gotten to know a lot of them and they they said, you know, life was hell down there, but you just get into this you get into this thing, you're already addicted to something and it's so available it, it's so hope it was so hopeless down there. So you just, you know, you leave the road home in the morning and you hang around people who are all using what you're using. Uh-huh. And he didn't have any prospect for a job or a house or anything else. Mm-hmm. And so it's, why not? Why not just get high? Sure. And yeah. so living like that day in and day out, women selling themselves just to, yeah. just to, so they can get the drugs that they want. And, it's, and it just becomes part of life. Yeah. And then all of a sudden they're forced through Operation Rio Grande, love it or hate it, they're forced into this new life, at least an option of a new life, mm-hmm. And because if they leave treatment, then they're going to go back to jail. So, right, right. so it is you know it's it's sort of court ordered treatment or force, but mm-hmm. but it you know it it's working. Yeah, because uh, it's offering an option that they didn't have before. Right. Yeah, and that th- those types of things do seem to work on some level. That's kind of a, a theme that we've we've been talking about. Um, there are a percentage of them that that you know didn't get picked up and, and kind of moved sure moved to other spots as you probably my point of bringing that up yeah. is you said that uh, a lot of these people do even if they just want clean needles to stay healthy they're yeah. making some positive choices yeah. and and even though they were sort of forced to make yeah. the positive choices they liked yeah. 
what happened after right yeah and that's why i think that the the importance of looking at things like safe injection sites are are vital too or should be vital or part of the 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 consciousness of how to treat this problem um that'll it, never happen in utah it, probably not but uh, i'm gonna hold out hope <laughs> i can dream i can i'll dream. be dead before i mean i'll be long gone before that okay. ever happens all right we're let's move on Okay. Um, before I die, we need to move on. You don't here, move yeah. on before you die. Yeah. We'll move on before you die, or or me. If I pass out on your couch, it's, it's not an overdose. It's death. Okay. It's death from old age. <laughs> well, uh, oh my gosh, I had a heart attack last year. By the way, wow, I know, and I, I, I was very That's surprised. A wake up call. Yeah, that was a wake up call, um, and it did. It was. It was a wake up call for a, a lot of a lot of things. Um, and uh, just but, think you did cocaine never had a heart attack then you then you you're, stri- been 20, you're straight and clean and yeah, you've been 22 and, and you years a heart or something attack. Yeah, boy yeah yeah. Uh. <laughs> yeah but i but it was probably associated with damage that i had done over some could of those be. years could be you know um and i i do see that and i look back and think about the consequences and the other things associated with it too of course diet and exercise sure. and things but um the substance abuse definitely played a part in it it's it it, I don't know how much, but um, cocaine is not good for the heart. And <laughs> well, I, I mean, you, you talk about any drug, and, and and I think anybody in in the throes of addiction knows. Mm-hmm. I mean, I knew. I mean, alcohol is poison. It's just plain simple. It's poison. Mm-hmm. Okay, but you like the way it makes you feel, or you like the way it numbs your feelings. Okay, I knew full well that mm-hmm. it wasn't good for me. Uh, people injecting heroin or using meth or cocaine know full well it's not good for them, mm. but they still do it. Yeah, that's you true. Know? That's true. Okay. Um, I want to, today in, in your life, what brings you joy? What, where, where do you find joy these days? My biggest joy is, is getting rid of, and I've gotten rid of it, the chaos and drama that was in my life. Peacefulness brings me joy Hmm. i always had explosive relationships with women i was always hiding uh what i was doing i I focused so much on on whether there was going to be alcohol available um i spent my I, I, i i spent my life thinking about that i mean like if if my wife would say we uh we're invited to a wedding I'd say, is it a Mormon wedding? Because I knew alcohol wouldn't be served, you know. And if it, if she said yes, I'd say, well, then you go. Um, or if we were going to a party, same thing. And I'd have a couple of drinks before we'd go to the party. Uh, I, I, alcohol was always prominent on my mind hmm. uh, to the detriment of everything else in my life. Right. Um, and 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 the results are... I mean, when you hear news stories about overnight SWAT standoffs or domestic violence incidents, they almost always involve people who are high either on alcohol or drugs. Uh, and chaos and drama just seem to go along with the lifestyle of, of using those things. And I, I have made a point. I, I still actively am involved in AA. Um, I can say that I think I, I just can't. 
I don't know. Anyway, I just <laughs> you said say it, whatever so you okay. want. <laughs> I, I just don't want to offend my friends at AA. But, uh, you know, and, and they often talk about, you know, the big book talks about the, the chaos and drama that goes along mm-hmm. with with primarily alcohol back then. But mm-hmm. um, and I've, I've made a point in I made a point to live in the present mm-hmm. to get rid of any toxic relationships I have, including a job. I mean, my my television is a toxic job i mean like it or not it may seem glamorous and everything but it's not <laughs> i mean it's it's high pressure uh, it's it's negative a lot of the time it was it was toxic to me i mean i i dealt with it not very well some of the time uh but so get rid of all the toxic things in my mm-hmm. life uh including women uh which doesn't mean I'm not open to meeting a, a good woman. <laughs> if you're hearing that out there, my number is. Uh, 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 you didn't know you were using this as a pimp. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, right. uh, um, and, and the so, Bozo dating service. <laughs> yes. So I, I, I guess just uh, <clears throat> peace. Peace brings me brings me joy. Yeah. I, you know, I golf occasionally, and I, you know, and that and that way I was used golf is an excuse to drink and now i have to use it as an excuse to play golf uh, and, and and i'm a terrible golfer and I, I i need to learn to just find peace in that i find peace in the beauty of a golf course like up at mountain dell or something like that mm-hmm. but um and, and just you know reading a book uh watching a movie mm-hmm. uh being i could never be alone before and now i like being oh, alone yeah I, I love being alone actually um so that's what brings me joy it's not you know and i i remember in in treatment they were talking about the the levels of what you perceive to be joy and excitement and stuff like that and and i was used to like real high extremes you know when i was drunk all the time mm-hmm. And you really have to readjust your thought process in your brain mm-hmm. to think that, you know, it's it's pretty good getting rid of all the chaos and drama, even though I don't have those euphoric highs that I used to have before. Right. But I also don't have those terrible lows that I had before. So I'm much more in the middle of happiness, and that brings me happiness. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. 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 So. Which that kind of leads into my next question, which I, I use the term Zen or Zen zone or but it's really about how do I, how do I connect to that, that authentic part of myself, the the thing that resonates, um, you know, to to my truth, whatever that is. And maybe you were answering that a, a little bit. Um, I also, I mean, I, I ever since I was really serious about getting sober, hmm. I, I I I started to pray and try to meditate. I'm hmm. not very good at either. And I'm not a very religious person, and I don't know who I'm, who I'm, who or what I'm praying to. And my sponsor in AA said it doesn't matter <laughs> if you want the wall you're looking at sure. to be your higher power, make it your higher power. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, <clears throat> and and I think just the process of of praying, mm-hmm. regardless of whether anybody's listening or anything's listening, and and trying to meditate, and just focusing on your thoughts. Uh, not necessarily yourself. I, t- I try to focus on when I pray or I meditate, I, I try to think of what I would like for the people in my life who are important to me. Um, and not, 
if, if I am, if there is somebody listening, uh, asking for things like uh, another day of, of, of peace and calmness mm-hmm. uh, and, and patience. Uh, one of the biggest things, one of the things I, I, I do two things to stay sober most of the time. One is, one is I play the tape uh, because I think human brains, like if I think back to my drinking days, all my brain seems to remember is all the fun I used to have, right. okay? And I have to force myself to think about, now, wait a minute. How about those nights you were stumbling home or falling against the wall or hurting yourself uh-huh. or creating terrible relationships or, or doing stupid stuff? And so I play the tape whenever I whenever I think about drinking again. And the, the second thing was I, I always responded instantly to like if you'd if you'd say something i'd say well that's a stupid question you're a jerk for doing Mm. no i'd say it in stronger language Um, (laughs) but but now and and this is what i work with in my therapist is if something bad happens to you on a given day and it happens to all of us whether we're no matter what we're doing um she said as opposed to responding and my old response was to drink or you know, and uh, the only thing I have to respond with now is words or whatever. But as opposed to responding, then why don't you sleep on it? And when you wake up tomorrow, I'll think about what it was that you were upset about, mm-hmm. and is it as bad? Uh-huh. And it never is. Right. And and that's what always sent me. That's what always triggered me to to just numb myself. Mm-hmm. And 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 I take that even to a bigger extreme in in work now. If somebody sends me an email that I think is just totally ridiculous and I want to say something immediately back, and I've tried this as an experiment, uh-huh. I'll, on, on a draft, I'll say what I was thinking right then and what, I want to, what I'd want to say right mm-hmm. then. And, then I, and I won't send it, obviously. And the next day I'll come in and write a draft to that email and look at the two and and my draft from the day before is, you know, I'll say, why would I have said that, or why would I have yeah, done that, or what would that have accomplished? And and so it's so when I say patience in terms of responding to stuff, mm. that's that that keeps me in a peaceful zone. Yeah, you know, I get that. I don't I don't get angry or respond. That I don't, is great I don't, advice. I don't have I don't have road rage. I don't have, um, you know, it, I'll let three cars come in in front of me in a entrance lane to the freeway if they want to get in i mm-hmm. i don't care because it's not i, I there's no reason to mm-hmm. get to get mad over stuff like that my mm-hmm. dad used to I, I lived in a little town in ohio and, and when we'd fly we have to fly out of the cleveland airport and and downtown cleveland was a pretty bad place at the time and and my dad would I'll never forget him driving to the airport and if somebody would cut him off or something would upset him he'd flip the bird to the car next to him and I kept saying there dad you know this could be a <laughs> this could be somebody with a gun or somebody <laughs> right, you right, know it's right. it's just, and it's just not worth it yeah. you know so that's that's my peaceful you know just maintaining peace I get it um I I I really like the way you put that that was good um so what are your what are your beliefs or thoughts? You kind of said you're not sure already, but what are your beliefs on um, God or the universe? Or I think the only you know, firm belief your I spiritual, have, I, 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 I'm not very spiritual. 
I accept the fact that they're, it's pretty hard to believe that, that all that is created here was didn't just happen. Uh, I, I, I marvel at the miracle of the human body. Uh, mm. You know, knock on wood, I abused the hell out of my body for over 40 years, and I'm still alive, mm. and I shouldn't be. Mm. Um, and so the body or the brain, like when we talked about brain clarity, how is it that my brain is getting more clear at my age? You know, well, it's because I'm not, I'm not <laughs> numbing my brain with, with yeah, not, poison all the not, time. Not over medicating. You know, <laughs> and so I, I marvel at the creation of the, of the human body mm. or an animal body or the whole system that we have here. Yeah. And I, I don't dispel the fact that perhaps there was a creator or is a creator uh, watching over us. I also don't dispel the fact that perhaps, you know, I read sort of about it in a Stephen King novel, perhaps perhaps there is some super society somewhere out in the universe who created us for fun and are watching us as a game. <laughs> You know, and it's a super game. Right. They're, they're looking at those stupid humans. Another <laughs> war over there. Look at all the drugs they're doing, you know. And I wonder, you know, and, and you know, I, I don't discount the fact that maybe that exists. <laughs> you know, but I know that there's something bigger than us. Okay. Uh, yeah. And the only thing I firmly believe in is karma. And, and I, I try to, you know, I took for so many years and I'm trying to give back. Uh, and and I hope you know I hope it I hope the bad years don't come around to kick me in the butt, and I hope the good years take care of me uh-huh. in my old age. Uh-huh. Uh, and I just believe that that giving back and treating people with respect and dignity and love is is the way to go. Yeah. Um, karma, that sort of cause and effect, whatever I put out is yeah. going to come back yeah. in some way. Um, I don't ask this question very often, but I'm going to ask it today. Um, what do you think happens when uh, when we die? I have no idea. I I, I ponder that sometimes. Mm-hmm. I think the worst thing that would happen when we die is if we be if nothing, that we become nothing, like a light switch kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. and and that scares me now as a human trying to envision that mm-hmm. because obviously if that's what happens, I'm not going to know. Uh, so I'd prefer to believe that something happens after we die. Uh-huh. Uh, I, my, my mother is 91 and still very chipper and, and mm. very hundred wow. percent, uh, you know, metal capacity. And she goes to the gym three days a week, which wow. is more than I can say for myself. <laughs> um, and I, last trip home, I asked her that I said, what do you, what, you know, cause she, she's preparing to die. Mm-hmm. She's. She knows, she, you know, she's at the end, mm-hmm. uh, even though nothing's wrong. And, you know, and she, she asked me sometimes, she said, what do you think's going to kill me? How do you think I'm going to die? Mm-hmm. Because her, her systems are all, her heart's fine. Her, mm-hmm. I mean, everything's fine. So she wonders how she's going to die. Interesting. And I asked her the last time I was home, I said, what do you think happens when I die? When you die? Uh-huh. And she said, I, she said basically the same thing I said. She said, I don't know. She said, I'd like to believe, she goes to church and she believes in God and Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, and she said, I'd like to believe in an afterlife, uh, but I'm not sure. And I guess I won't ever know till I die. Mm-hmm. 
but I don't worry about it because what good does it do to worry yeah. about it? Yeah. You know, that that kind of probably fits into with the idea of you know experiencing a sense of peace and contentment right about life that that's not something i need to worry about right now right which i i, I, I mean what good's it gonna do right. i mean if you you know other than trying to lead a good life if you believe <laughs> in an afterlife and you believe in a re- reward for the way you lived here then yeah. that's pretty good reason to live a good life here but even if you don't believe in any or you don't know what you believe uh-huh. there's nothing wrong with leading a good life if you believe in karma you know. that's a, that's a that's a perfect way to look at it uh-huh. i think yeah all right last question um i'd mentioned this earlier uh, if there were a couple songs randall that represented your life's journey in some way or had some meaning for you um do you, is there a song or two that there, there's one song i i told one of my ex-wives that i want to play it at my funeral so it probably won't be because i told them uh but <laughs> wait it may now you know, i have i have a i have a life ceremony playlist by the way and I, I, I have so many friends now who have, who have died from drug overdoses or alcoholism and it's i guess it's sort of sad but but uh, Elton John's funeral for a friend. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Just is very moving to me. That's a powerful song. And then in terms of life, I I you know, I, I I like Mary Chapin Carpenter and one of her songs and I think it's the way you have to look at life. In the song it says sometimes you're the windshield, sometimes you're the bug. Sometimes you're the Louisville slugger, sometimes you're the ball. And, and, and that's sort of a good way to look at things. You know, t- today I'm the windshield and you're the poor bug, you know, and, and tomorrow I might be the bug smashing into yeah. the windshield. And, and it's just, it, it just goes to show that the ups and downs in life are something we have to deal with. Yeah. You know, uh, I just, you know, to me, I, you know, it's a semi-country rock song, and, and she, <laughs> which I think she's a good, she's, she's a great performer, but I she's just like the words. She's a great writer, that, too. You know, yeah, she's, sometimes you're the windshield, sometimes you're the bug. Yeah. I mean, everybody can picture that. Yeah. I know, I, I can't remember the name of the song either, I, It's but it's I, that's that album from the album, Come On, Come On. Yeah. Yeah, and I, but I can't remember the name of the song. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I, I will find it, and, and, and uh, we'll... Uh, We'll, we'll have it's a, it. It's a good upbeat little country song that you yeah. can do the two-step or four-step or whatever yeah, too. Something, but something like that. Yeah, yeah. There, Get Lucky was on that album too. Yeah. I think yeah, or something like. And that. I and I love songs like that. Yeah. You know, she's something. You know, I'm lucky. I remember I was trying to think of the words. You know, she she goes into a convenience store, bar, buys a, a lottery a ticket. lottery ticket, wins a million dollars. You know, oh, and, and she sits down at a bar to have a drink, and Lyle Lovett and one other country star are sitting on either side of her, you know, and, and she's talking about, you know. Who she's got to choose or something. Yeah, she's right. I'm lucky, you know. You know, so. Good stuff. Yeah, I think those are those are good songs. But I, I always think about that when on days when I'm feeling sorry for myself mm-hmm. or, uh you know, or just feeling sort of down. It's, you know, sometimes sometimes you're the windshield, sometimes you're the bug. Uh, you know, and it's it's perfect, you know. Yeah, and, and it applies to all of us. It doesn't matter. Yeah. You could be the wealthiest person in the world or have the, you know, the biggest problems in the world, you know, but it's not always going to be like that. And, you know, you, 
You might be the bug today, but you know, down the road, you might be the windshield. <laughs> might be the windshield. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I love it. That's beautiful. Thank you so much, Randall. Thank you so much for doing this thank today. Thank you for I, having me. I really me. appreciate I, you coming and spending. I enjoyed talking to you. And it's, uh, you know, anything. In my opinion, there's, there's, everybody seems to be working from different angles at the issues we're dealing with in life. And more and more people are accepting the fact that there is a need to deal with those issues. So whatever you do or whatever Odyssey House does or whatever the state legislature does Mm. or the needle exchange people or the various treatment centers, I mean, to me, you know, there's no one solution for any single person, whatever Mm -hmm. their issues are. Uh, And so the more the merrier when you have legitimate people working to help another person with whatever their issues are so if 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 this <laughs> podcast persuades one person to say hey i'm a i'm a lawyer and i'm hiding the fact that i'm a, that i'm that i'm an alcoholic and i need help then it's been a really valuable thing you know uh, because you can only do things on a one-on-one basis you can't do them that's right you can't say hey this is going to work for everybody let's let's force everybody who went to this bar tonight to come to a treatment center tomorrow. I mean, right. that, that doesn't work. You know, yeah. you'd have a real rebellion on your that, hands. That's, that's true. You know? That's true. But the fact of making it, of, of spreading the knowledge that these services are available mm-hmm. is, is so important to people. Yeah. Well, and I, I do believe in that, um, that notion or the, the, the idea, the concept that, um, that Johan Hari, uh, I think really professed and he had, he did a Ted talk and wrote a book about this um, chasing the scream. It was called, but the idea that the opposite of addiction is connection. And I think that there's so much truth to that. I see, I, I see that uh, connection and community are what make this work and, and what makes, you know, all of our lives and our relationships healthier. So. Yeah, the only people I was connected to were my drinking buddies. <laughs> You know, back in my drinking days, and well, and, and the alcohol. <laughs> well, and alcohol. Yeah, I had I had a long term intimate relationship with cocaine. Yeah, well, there you go. Maybe maybe that's why my four wives left me because I was married to alcohol yeah, and not them. That's how I look but, at it anyway. That yeah. uh, I really bonded with something that wasn't healthy for me. Yeah. yeah, and 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 now I mean that's why I embrace my job at Odyssey House and and. Being able to do things like this, or I spoke at the addiction conference at UVU a couple mm-hmm. of weeks ago, uh, and I, you know, this brings up the shame issue. I called my talk a tale of two Randalls, and I had to show one side. Here's the guy on TV, yeah, right. and and I had a couple of shots of me passed out on a couch, looking like a drunken bum, yeah. and that's the other Randall. Yeah. So, you know, but getting to be able to share with and getting to know people within the treatment community and within the community of people in need. I mean, I, I've become as close as people can get to, to the clients in our program because I, 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 I find a lot of them for news stories if they're willing to sign a release mm-hmm. and do a news story. And I get to know them. And they're, I mean, nobody, I, you know, the person that the person that came in from Rio Grande and then graduates from our program wearing a coat and tie and speaking at the graduation uh-huh. are, are you? They it's the same person, but but 
you know, but what it tells me is that everybody has Everyone the potential, has potential. to yeah. be that person that somebody else looks up to and to yeah. succeed in life. Yeah. And and everybody, I, it doesn't matter, doesn't matter how low you've gone, you you've got the potential to to do something good. Yeah. You know. That's that's beautifully said. I have that same view and hope. All right. Thanks again, Randall. You're welcome. I really enjoy. This is an honor spending this. Uh, it was fun. The, the morning with you. All right. We will uh, leave you there. We'll see you next week with the Bozo Roundtable. We'll go out as we usually do with a little Joan Osborne. Have a good week. If see